Well, we are well into Lent. I haven't done the math, but I think we're halfway. And of course, Lent is a time in the Christian church of self-examination, of spiritual assessment, of repentance. And uh, it's 40 days long because it mirrors the 40 days that the Lord Jesus fasted in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And of course, I don't know anyone who has completely fasted during all of Lent, said, all right, well, that was a good pancake supper, and that's it until Easter morning when I break out the ham. But there are different kinds of fasts and different ways that people have fasted in order to observe what Christ did and remember it, in order to look inside themselves without distraction and see what more there is to hand over to God and say, Lord, this belongs to you. And I've known people who have uh, done different kinds of fasts as far as not drinking Soda pop, people who have fasted more and more lately from social media, Facebook and Twitter and all these things that are constantly bombarding our minds and distracting us. People who have fasted even from uh, television, fasted from uh, sleeping with a pillow. I mean, all sorts of odd things. And, and I, I tell you, I have found that one of the most useful kinds of fasts that I've ever gone on was a news fast. A friend of mine told me about this one. He said, I'm on a news fast. Don't talk to me about what's going on in the world. I said, what does that mean? He said, I had just, I had it. I've got completely filled up and I couldn't take anymore. And I was going to explode. And I said, I don't want to hear anymore. And I, I said, I'm going to do that too. And I did that for a week. And I thought, wow, this is wonderful. Lent any time of year to go on a, a short news fast from the, the 24-hour cycle of here's some news, here's some news, here's some more bad news, and to take a break from the anxiety and the worry and and just the sorrow that comes from reading or watching or listening to the news. Not that we stick our heads in the sand and, and we don't care what's going on around us, but just to take a break. Because again, it's all bad news, isn't it? Every news story isn't a murder or a natural disaster or something, but it's very rare that you're watching the news on television or, or reading the headlines on your computer and you go, oh, <laughs> that makes me smile and gives me hope. When it does, that, that stands out to us. And so this morning, I want to give you hope and give you some good news because there should be one place you can come where you will not have more and more bad news just piled on your shoulders. And sometimes in the church, we fail at this. The church should be a place where we come together and we receive good news. And this is a passage here in 2 Corinthians 5 that is just chock full of the stuff. Now, it's a passage with more than one famous verse in it in rapid succession. Sometimes you see that. You'll read a little paragraph and go, oh, wow, I already knew like two-thirds of this thing just from I knew this verse, I knew this verse, I knew this verse. And it is another passage that has a super famous verse that begins with the word, therefore, right? And when we see that word, boys and girls, this is the thing, it, it, when I'm long gone and you think back about, oh, that kid that was pastor, what was his? If you remember context, 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 and therefore, and that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is about Jesus, I'll be a happy man. But the question we ask, what is the therefore, therefore, it applies especially to these famous verses that we just throw out. We say, oh, here's this, here's this, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. 
Well, what's the therefore pointing back to? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before you say, well, here's this verse, go back and look at what the therefore is pointing to. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's good to learn passages. It's good to learn verses. Memory verses are wonderful. Hide God's word in your heart. But they shouldn't stand in instead of the Bible. They should draw you into the Bible. And so when I remember, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, I should go, therefore, wherefore? And then open the word and have a look at why am I a new creation? And this little passage has three therefores. Paul likes to build his arguments almost like a building. Each floor on top of the one that came before it, supporting it, and all of them pointing back to a foundation. And the foundation in view right here goes right back to last week. That we see that Christ died and all then died in him. That This is a wonderful foundation for all of the hope that we have in the Christian faith. That we have been convinced of this or we have concluded this. That we have recognized that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was Raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does that mean, according to the flesh? Well, according to a, a human point of view. He, he's making reference again to these opponents that have crept in. In, in Corinth and are now bad-mouthing Paul in his absence and saying he's not a true apostle. Remember, he talked about how they, uh, in, in, uh, back in verse 12, those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart didn't understand the gospel. They, they were the first century version of live now at your best life, happy, good-looking, successful, and that is God's will for your life. A kind of name-it-and-claim-it, feel-good message And based on that message, they looked at Paul and said, that's not a guy you want to follow. Because, first of all, he's always being uh, abused and afflicted and facing trials and sickness. Nothing goes right for this guy. And beyond that, he's ugly. And you say, how do you know that, Pastor? I know it from church tradition. He he was a, a little squat guy with kind of a pinched face, and he had a very pronounced unibrow. That's what church tradition tells us about the Apostle Paul. And, and, and here come these super apostles in their flowing robes and their wonderful rhetoric saying, don't listen to that guy, but listen to us. And yet Paul says, we no longer view things that way, according to the flesh. I don't regard anyone from that point of view, according to worldly standards and values. The values that say, this life is all that matters. No, I say, live your best life then, in eternity. And work toward the kingdom of God. Jesus, by the way, taught the same thing. John 8, 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, the apostle, though, admits that he used to view things this way, according to the flesh, from the human perspective. While he was a Pharisee, this is the whole, he didn't only just look at the Christians he was persecuting, but Christ himself, from that point of view, this was his whole perspective and the extent of how he viewed the world. 
that he and the group of people he surrounded himself with conveniently said of Jesus that he was a false messiah. And they viewed his suffering and death as proof of that because it was a curse of God upon this man who tried to lead Israel Israel astray. And they would point back to Deuteronomy 21, in which we read this as part of the law. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And so they say, you see, this guy was under God's curse and God got him in the end. And within Paul's lifetime, traditions grew up around this. We see them laid down in what's called the Talmud, that Jesus was a sorcerer. He'd been born out of adultery. That Jesus, the Nazarene, practiced magic and worshipped idols and tried to get his followers also to do both of those things. And that after he died, we have the story of him being summoned just long enough from the afterlife to tell this guy, Angelos, what had happened to him now and what he was enduring in the afterlife, which is that he is continually punished in boiling excrement. These are not things that, that are recent additions. This is stuff that within Paul's lifetime was being laid out. So Paul had this view of Christ that was entirely outward. Well, look what became of him. Well, look what became, look what kind of people followed him. And without the eyes of faith to see who Christ truly was, he was unable to get beyond that. But his eyes were opened. Do you remember the story? On the road to Damascus to persecute the church there, he was knocked down, and there Jesus spoke to him, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And he was struck blind. And as he was brought to the home of a disciple of Jesus, and, and as his, his uh, scales were washed away from his eyes, he could see not only physically, but now spiritually with the eyes of faith. It completely changed Paul's spiritual center of gravity. Nothing was the same after that. And he came to understand that Jesus did become a curse. But that's the work of God. Galatians 3, Paul wrote this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. He he says, you know, I didn't understand. I thought I knew when I saw according to the flesh, but now looking back, I realize I had no idea who Jesus was. And it's so ironic that today, many of the go-to names, if someone is making a documentary and there's something about Jesus in it, Many of the personalities, the so-called experts or scholars, in quotes, uh, on Jesus' life, they don't have the first clue, anything, about Jesus, what he was about, what he came to do. They, They only see through the flesh, according to human perspectives. You you watch John Dominic Crossan on, on one of these documentaries, and he thinks he has all the answers about Jesus, but he has none of the answers, not even like he has He's partway there. You know, like Isaac Newton didn't really fully grasp gravity. Einstein did a lot more for understanding of gravity than than Newton, but he had the basic concept down, right? It's not even like that. It's it's like a medieval doctor who thinks that most diseases are caused by night air and that the, the solution is, you know, let's drain some blood out of you because you got too much blood in there. The understanding is completely opened up when the eyes of faith are opened and the scales fall away and one comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And the world was obsessed and remains obsessed with these outward 
distinctions. Even while Jesus warns at every turn against that, don't focus on the outside of the dish, the outside of the tomb, sitting at the best seat of the parties, or whatever the case. Don't focus on the outside, but on the inside. It was just as true back then that people focused on these things. Are you Jew or Gentile? Rich or poor? Slave or free? Are you Roman citizen or sub-citizen? And when we're all in Christ, these things fade away. Yes, we see the distinctions, and no, we don't think that who you are, where you come from, what you've been through, doesn't matter. It's just that we don't judge each other based on that outward stuff. We have new eyes that see people as Christ sees them, and a new heart that is filled with compassion for the other. And so he no longer sees according to the flesh. Therefore, hey, there's that again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Last week we talked at length about how Christianity is so different from all the world's religions, which essentially boil down to self-improvement. Improve yourself. Make yourself more acceptable to God. Climb that ladder up into the heavens and how none of them can get to the real cause of the problem, which is the heart. There was once a, a pre-med student at Harvard. He was in his sophomore year, and he decided to do a trip. And he went with some friends to Tibet. And there they visited this Buddhist monastery. And as he went into the monastery, he was just kind of taken aback by how at peace everyone seemed. It was up in the mountains, and it was far from the hustle and bustle and all the, the daily grind of the academic world. And he began to talk to one of the monks, and the monk said, Look at your life. Look how you've poisoned your soul by just seeking after success and nothing but success. Look at how you your, your idea of, of winning is to stay up all night studying for a test, not because you love the subject, but so you can do better than your classmate. That your idea of love and marriage is not to find your soulmate, but to find the girl that someone else wants and steal her so that you win. And so I think that you need to stay here, my young friend and discover true enlightenment. Life is not a competition. Life is something to be enjoyed, not won. And, and it really hit this guy. And so he, he went to the nearest phone, which I guess it was in the monastery. I don't know. Hey, I didn't make up the story. He calls his parents, and he says, Mom and Dad, I'm, I'm not coming back. I'm dropping out of school. I'm staying here in the Buddhist monastery because they've opened my eyes to just the rat race. I, I was on this road to just burning out, chasing after success. Six months went by. He continued in the monastery. He did all the right chants. He did all the right things. He did all the right meditation. And finally, he wrote his parents. And he said, Mom and Dad, I am so glad I decided to stay here. For the first time in my life, I'm at peace. I have peace inside myself. There's no, there's no hustling around. There's no competition. There's none of that stuff. All here are equal. And everyone lives in harmony. And in only six months, I have become the number two disciple at this monastery. And by June, I should be number one. You can take someone and put them in a different environment and give them different paces to run through and even give them different words to read and think about. But unless the heart is changed, your problems go with you. You ever have that desire to just get away from everything? Problem is when you got there, You'd have brought it all with you. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you 
rest, true rest of the soul. And he does it by giving us a new heart and taking the burden of the law from our shoulders. When you receive Christ, you're not being reformed or rehabilitated or re-educated. You're being recreated, reborn, resurrected. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's receiving a new life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. The old has passed away. Now, you know how sometimes I'll go on and on about the tense of the Greek verb in the New Testament and say, well, it's sort of like, you know, the present tense and the past tense loved each other very much, and then they came again. And this is a simple past tense. The old has passed away. Nothing fancy. An accomplished fact. The old has passed away. This is the same word, by the way, you remember when we were in 2 Peter? It was just a couple months ago. Peter closed that whole thing by talking about the, the day of the Lord, how it would come like a thief, and the heavens and the earth would pass away. And, and the heavenly bodies would be burned up and dissolved. I mean, this is cataclysmic apocalypse stuff he's describing. Same word as, as Paul here uses. For the old which has passed away. And behold, the new has come. Don't miss the word behold. You know what it means in the Bible? You see that, lo and behold. And you think, oh, that's just there to make it like Bible-y, of course. No, it means something. Same thing, hine in the Old Testament. Uh, in, in, in the New Testament, the word behold, it means, look, there. Seriously, look, there. Look, there's nothing. Most of you didn't fall for that. Good for you. You're on top of things today. But listen, don't miss that word if you're on top of this. The word behold is there because when the old is gone and the new has come, you can look and behold it. We said it last week. There are things that we would in our old heart have desired. And maybe even the old self is trying to creep up and bring it back to mind, but because the old is gone and the new has come, we don't. We say no to it. We put it to death anew. And there are those things that are new that have come. Those things we would never even have thought of. There are so many people I've known who say, you know, before I came to faith in Jesus, I was not a people person at all. I did not want to spend any time with anybody. If somebody said, you know, oh, my friend's in the hospital, I was like, oh, good, I won't see them. And now, suddenly, I have a desire to help people, to care for them, to pray for them, to sit with them when they suffer. You know, the, the old has gone away, the new has come. Are the new things, what, what are the new things that have come? Pray this length that more of the new things will manifest themselves and more of the old things will pass away like the heavenly bodies burning up and being dissolved. And again, all of this is rooted in the gospel. The foundation of it all, all the therefores, is the gospel. What Christ did for us on the cross. On Good Friday, we're going to talk about this. Actually, I'm going to talk about this. You're, you're going to sit there. But on Good Friday, we will emphasize the death of Jesus for us. And you know, it's becoming more and more popular to shun that doctrine. I saw an article written in the... Uh, what, the Baptist reporter or something yesterday by a Baptist minister from the, the Alliance, Baptist Alliance, saying well, it's time to just do away with this idea of the substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died so that the God's wrath against sin would be satisfied. It's so old-fashioned and so brutal. We need, to, we need to get rid of it. There's all these objections. It makes God like a, a 
cosmic child abuser, or it, it makes him so angry and, and, and separates him from Jesus because Jesus is loving and God is not. And here in this passage, we find the solution to all of those objections. When he says it was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Yes, God has wrath against sin because he's holy. And who was it who came in Christ and, and, and filled that gap so that we could come to him? It was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Christ's death on the cross did not change God the Father's character from mean to nice. God, Christ's death on the cross did not produce God's love for us. Oh, I hated you, but oh no, I find that I have love. It was God's character and God's love for us that caused the death of Christ on the cross. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the result we find in verse 19. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to them the message of reconciliation. Jesus died on a cross that your sins, your trespasses would not be counted against you. You're looking, what's the difference? Sins and trespasses. We got all these, these words in the New Testament and they're, they're sort of overlapping. They're sort of, well, a sin, the word of the Greek is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. You, you shooting arrows at a target. Sometimes you hit the bullseye. Sometimes you miss the mark. Trespass means to step right over the line. The Old Testament law dealt with when you missed the mark, when you unintentionally broke the law, never had anything for us from when we stepped right across the line defiantly. When Jesus died, he died so that your sins, your trespasses would not be held against you, would not be imputed to you. Is that a word you know, impute? If you're a Christian, you should. And yeah, that means you might have to learn a new word. My son has learned 768,000 Pokemon names in the last six months. We can learn a new word. Impute. It means to lay the credit or blame for something upon someone. So you would say, I, I, I impute you with the crime that you committed or that I think you committed. Or, or to impute to someone the honor of having accomplished something. So when we read that, that Jesus died so that God would not impute our sins to us, but rather impute our sins to him? That is insane. Rightfully, they belong to me, but Jesus took them. And this idea of imputed righteousness, that, that my sin was imputed to him, and his righteousness was imputed to me, it's not new in the New Testament. You find it all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 15, Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Or, speaking of Good Friday, we always read from Isaiah 53, this is written hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion even existed as a form of punishment, let alone before Jesus had come on the scene, born of a, a woman. And we read about what he would endure for us, how our sins would be imputed to him. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted under a curse of God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that stands before its shearers silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And again, that's written centuries before Christ came to do just that. This was God's plan from the beginning, that man sinned and he said, I will come and bear that sin. God in Christ reconciling the world. Did I tell you it was going to be good news? Is there any better? Peter said the same thing, that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins in his body because he had no sins of his own. He took ours upon himself. Verse 21 then, the last verse in the passage, every bit as central to the message of the New Testament as John 3.16. You know John 3.16? You should know 2 Corinthians 5.21. In it we read, how come you're not re- reciting it, Zach? I don't know. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll read it again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. First of all, this tells us Jesus was sinless. He lived a life without ever once thinking, saying, or doing anything that brought guilt upon him. John tells us that in 1 John 3, he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Or it's even more emphatic in Hebrews 7, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's a description of our high priest, Jesus. But even though he was sinless, he became sin on our behalf. Just as Adam, as our representative, sinned, broke the law, and in doing so broke the law for all mankind, so Christ, as our representative, fulfilled all the righteousness of the law for us. So that Jeremiah can say the Lord is our righteousness. And in this, you might go, I've heard people say, hold on, step back, that's not fair. How is it that I broke the law in Adam? I wasn't even there. Well, by biblical thinking, you were in Adam. But if that's not fair, then it's also not fair that your sin was put on Jesus' shoulders. Is this message even fair? Is God fair? No. There's a trade going on here. We call it the great exchange. You, you've exchanged something at some point. You've traded. They don't let kids trade at lunch anymore. They've got to do it under the table or the down low. But we used to trade. And, and it's always, if it's fair, it's got to be two things of more or less equal value. Right? And yet in this case, in this exchange, we give him our sin, our guilt, our shame, our worst, and he gives us his righteousness, his sinlessness, his honor and glory to share in. What an exchange. No, it's not fair. Thank God it's not a fair. It's grace. Grace cannot be fair or it's no longer grace. And in this We too exchange the old, which is passed away, for the new, which, behold, has come. Remember, when I was in uh, college, I was a 
uh, youth minister for a while, and one time we went on uh, a little uh, weekend retreat to, I believe it was Lael, I guess, and there was a guy they brought in to speak, and I remember thinking, man, this guy's got so many cool stories. This story after story after story, I found out about a month later, every single one of them was from still more hot illustrations for youth talks, but whatever, he was good at delivering them. And I went back through and I, I reread, after I discovered that, I reread them. And one of them I read, I said, this is the one that really affected me the most. And now that I read it again, I don't know what I think about it. It was a story about a king who gave an invitation to everyone who lived around him. If they had royal garments, royal robes, they were invited to his castle for a big, amazing feast. A, a, a wonderful feast and festival and celebration. And right near the castle lived a beggar, and he heard the invitation as it was given by the herald, yay, 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 every day. And he felt bad because he wanted to go, but obviously he had only rags. He was a beggar. And he got the crazy and bold idea to get up and go and knock on that gate and say, excuse me, I'd like to see the king. And to his surprise, after a while, they said, the king will see you, and they brought him in. And he went up to the king, and he said, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to have any audience with you. But since I do, let me just tell you, I, I really want to come to your feast. I want to come to the party you're having, but I don't have, you can see, I don't have any royal garments. I'm wondering if you have some, some old leftover royal garments that I could borrow, that I could wear just for a day. If in any way I could have something that would allow me to come to the feast, I would be in your debt forever. And the king smiled and said, you are right to come to me. And he called to the prince and said, go and find some of our finest royal garments and have them fitted perfectly to him and tell him he can keep them forever. And the prince brought him along. He said, good, good idea coming to the king. So he took him and they had him fitted with all these royal garments. And the prince said, listen, not only do you get to come to the party because you have these, but you will never need to buy clothes again because these garments never wear out. He said, wow, that's amazing. He said, well, again, good idea, coming directly to the king and saying, I don't have anything I need, I need. And so they, they gave it to him. He went and, and got ready for the, the feast. He went into the feast. But for whatever reason, after he had changed, he kept his bundle of rags with him. He couldn't get rid of them. He couldn't bring himself to throw them out. And, and he carried them with him. And, and throughout the night... He ate some food, and it was better than most that he had eaten, but he missed some of the finest delicacies because this bundle of rags, it was unwieldy, and it kept falling out of his lap, or he'd catch people kind of staring at it and trying to hide it. And, and after the feast was over, he went on with his life, and he found that what the prince had said was true. These clothes didn't wear out. They didn't get ragged. They didn't get threadbare. And yet, wherever he went, he continued to carry that bundle of rags. And because he... he, he carried them with them, and he protected them. He came to love them more and more, and they became actually precious to him. And on his deathbed, skip the deathbed, the king came and visited him and saw that he was still clinging tight to those rags, and his face was so sad and downcast. And the man realized that even though he had been given these royal robes, these royal garments, he had given up the chance to live as true royalty because he wasn't willing to let go of the old things which should have passed away. Now, there's a lot of good in that. But 
there's also an awful lot of guilt in that. If we ended here, you could walk out of here going, well, that was a downer. I said I had good news. Now listen, Ash Wednesday, at the beginning of Lent, we have a a service of mourning and repentance. We are troubled by our sin, and we should be, because we should not be sinning. Repentance is vital to the life of a believer. You have to look in the mirror spiritually and assess. You have to do that. If you never, if, if you never look in the mirror, you will never see if you have you know, your zipper down or, or you're wearing two different shoes. Well, you can see that by looking down. But you'd never see if you had parsley in your teeth or your hair was sticking up funny. You'd humiliate yourself. And, of course, spiritual assessment and self-examination and reflection brings a lot less superficial realizations. We see that in our deepest heart, in our soul, we still are sometimes coddling and holding on to that which belongs to the old nature, that which should have passed away. But once you've got the picture, once you've looked in the mirror and said, oh, don't keep staring in the mirror. Don't keep thinking to yourself, ah, I've screwed up. Oh, I'm not making any progress. Oh, I'm no good. Take your eyes off yourself and your plight and how miserable you are on your own, and look to Christ, perfect Christ. And remember that when God looks at you, he sees you in Christ, complete in him. We're justified. We we often say justified, what does that mean? It means just as if I'd never sinned. And that's a cute way to sort of remember what it means, but it doesn't actually mean that. If you're justified, it's not just as if you ever never sinned. Like you're, you're walking around like Adam in the garden, naked and, and kind of without any knowledge of what's going No, you have now been clothed, not with fig leaves to cover your own shame, not even with skins of animals that have been sacrificed. No, when you look in the mirror, spiritually speaking, remember that he clothed you in a spotless linen robe, a divine garment. You're clothed not in human righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. That is good news. Yes, mourn your sins, but rejoice that not one of them can condemn you. Because they're not even yours anymore. They hung on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, on his suffering frame, when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. You're accepted by God because Christ is accepted by God. And every bit as much. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall continue to mourn and be miserable. No, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me comfort you today with the gospel. Romans 8.34 Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is seated in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading... For us. You won't be fully, fully sin-free and without another worry about about, uh, sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions until you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he glorifies you and removes every last bit of that which remains of the old self. But realize that in this moment, with all your struggles, all your backsliding, all the the shame you might feel when you look in the spiritual mirror, Christ accepts you. God accepts you now every bit as much as he will then. The Bible makes much of clothing metaphors. 
So remember what garment you're wearing. You know, people on the runway, they're like, well, who are you wearing? You're wearing Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. If you are in Christ, you are learning to hate sin. Maybe slower than you want. Maybe it's two steps forward, one step back. Maybe sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. But remember, he promised he started a good work in you. He'll bring it to completion. If you are in Jesus, sin is not living in you. It's dying in you. Christ is living in you. Spurgeon said this on the topic. Christian, let thy heart rejoice. What hast thou to fear? Let thy faith ever, face ever wear a smile. Live near thy master. Live in the suburbs of the celestial city. For soon, when thy time has come, thou shalt rise up where thy Jesus sits and reign at his right hand. And all this because the divine Lord, who knew no sin, was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He's given us a new heart and a new standing and the righteousness of God. And he's given us one more thing, and that is the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he's entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are ambassadors, ambassadors for him. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to Christ. An ambassador is an official representative of one kingdom to another, of one king to another kingdom. And we are that, official representatives. And when we say these words, we are speaking with the very authority of Christ. And he boils that whole message down to this. Be reconciled to God. And you know the most wonderful part of delivering that message as an ambassador is that it sounds difficult. But you're not telling someone you need to fill the space between you and God. You need to better yourself. You need self-improvement. You need to climb that ladder up into God's presence. That's not at all what we're telling them. Rather, we're saying to them, we plead with you. To simply accept the reconciliation that Christ has already made. And when he says here that we are saying, in God's stead, that is a heavy weight. But he will help us bear it. This man or that group in some religions speak on behalf of God. And they can just come up with things off the cuff and say, oh, God says this, God says that. In our understanding of the scriptures, this is what we have been authorized to proclaim. And we proclaim it. Be reconciled to God. As he says in verse 18, all this is from God. God is the one who initiated redemption. He's the only one who would. He's the only one who could. God is the one who will bring it to completion. And in the meantime, when we as ambassadors proclaim to the world, be reconciled to God, God is the one who gives that message wings and makes it effective. We have the joy as those who once were lost and now are found as those who once were old and now are new, as those who have been moved from death to life to take part in this wonderful mission, this wonderful ministry of reconciliation, having been entrusted with the message of reconciliation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of this stuff is good news. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our faith is not one that knocks us down and keeps us there. Our faith is not one that tells us that we need to rise by our own power, our own merit, our own might, our own works. 
but rather it's one that tells us that God in Christ has reconciled the world to Himself and gives us the joyful ministry of reconciliation for us to be able to turn to the world and say, I was lost, I was blind, now I see, now I'm found. Be reconciled to God. Lord, we pray that you would give us the boldness and the strength to do that. And when we find ourselves despairing or find ourselves caught up in shame or find ourselves feeling like we will never make spiritual progress, may we remember who we're wearing as followers of Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen.